Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Last week I was watching a football game, we just called a football game. I was watching a football game with family, and at one point I said, I really hope we make this first down. And it was at that very moment that I expressed what we could call if hope. See, I had no idea if we would actually make the pass. I had no idea if we would make the run. I had no idea if, if we would make that first down. But I hoped we would. I hoped we would. And that's how I was using the word hope. If hope. And if hope is the way that most of us use the word hope. Isn't it? But as Jesus followers, I think we have access to a totally different kind of hope. We could call it when hope. Not if, but when. Not if, but when hope. See, when it comes to the promises of God, it is a matter of when, not if. Always. I'll say that again. When it comes to the promises of God, it is a matter of when, not if. This is the first Sunday in Advent, and Advent means arrival. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, it means arrival. And so the global church has decided and spends four weeks focusing on the arrivals of Jesus. And notice I said plural, arrivals. Fishwarren explains how there are actually three arrivals that the church celebrates during the season. His incarnation in the past, his return in the future. And in between these two events, Jesus invades our personal stories by the Holy Spirit. And we know his presence, even now, as I preach. So Advent gives us a when, not if, hope. As surely as Jesus came to our world in Christmas, he will surely come again in the future. That is a when, not if, hope. And as surely as we have a relationship with Jesus today, so also will Jesus appear to us in the future? Our hope is a win, not if. Hope. Because our hope is Jesus. Our hope is a person. The promises of God, Jesus is yes to all the promises of God. And this win, not if, hope about the future, I think ought to give us a unique way of living today. And that's what we want to explore during Advent at Hope Church. At the airport, I think you can tell where people are going based off of how they're dressed and how they're acting. And so if they're heading to Florida, usually they're wearing sandals in 32 degree weather, right? Or usually there's a lightness in their shoulders. You can tell they're heading somewhere nice to relax. And on the contrary, you can tell those who are heading to a very stressful work conference based off what they're wearing. Their shoulders are tight. You can tell they're on a mission. They're all business. And in the same way, our life 
Our posture today is meant to clue people in to our convictions about the future. The when, not if hope that we all hold ought to shape who we are today. It ought to invite us even into disciplines that will shape us in ways that will now signal to others our convictions about the return of Jesus and what he brings. So as I said, each week of Advent, we're going to focus on one aspect of Jesus' sure return. And we're going to ask what that means for our life today. Sound good? That's what we're going to explore. This morning, we're going to begin with feasting. Feasting. Yes, I said feasting. (laughs) Uh, What does it mean today that Jesus came and will come again eating and drinking? Think about that. Let's pray first to find out. Lord, as we reflect on your first advent, and as we wait on your second advent, would we experience your promised third coming today? Come into our lives by your word, by your spirit right now. Whatever defenses we have, would you kindly invite us and even enable us to lay them down so that we could be receptive, hungry for you. Whatever hunger we are, whatever hungers we carry into this space, and we are feasting on other things, I pray that you would show the beauty of Jesus so that we would now rest in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I received my Spotify wrapped this week. Did you guys receive that? Here we go. Uh, this is how the music service Spotify reveals my most listened to artists for the year. And if you're dying to know, I know you're dying to know. You're dying to know. Boom. <laughs> I'm in the 0.5% fan base, y'all. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so what Spotify also does, if you have this service, is they, um, they send you what they call your artist messages. Right? It's a thank you video from the musicians that you stream the most. <laughs> Bach didn't get the memo. Okay? Um, but um, my other musicians, who haven't been dead for 500 years, uh, did send me a thank you video. And one of them is the Icelandic musician, um, Oliver uh, Arnolds. Uh, if you know him, I recommend him fully. Uh, but thankfully, he recorded his message in English. And essentially, what he told me and every other listener, all three of us, uh, what he told us was, if you're getting this message... It means you've spent a lot of time with my music this year. Which means you've been listening to a lot of sad music, and you should get some help. That's what he said. <laughs> uh, it made me laugh. Um, but his statement, I'll be honest, it kind of it kind of like hit close to the bone. And here's why. It caused me to kind of reflect on my habits. Not just my listening habits, but my life habits, my posture. Once somebody was getting to know me and asked my wife kind of when I wasn't around, was Joe laugh? Was their question. 
They still laugh. Here's the thing. When life, with all of its questions, when life, with all of its struggles, when life, with all of its stress, pressed down on me, um, I have a lot of trouble celebrating the good things in life. I have a lot of trouble having a playful attitude. The late Edmund Friedman, who's a wise observer of human nature, he once said that highly anxious communities are characterized by a lack of playfulness. Play, if you think about it, is the opposite of fighting or fleeing. And I think our current cultural moment is so tense, isn't it? It's so nervous. It's so hair-triggered. It's not playful. Well, so here's a question I want to ask. What if in this ancient cultural moment that Lord is sovereign over, God was calling the church to deep feasting? What if God was calling us to a table for such a time as this? And not just any table, but his table. And like, what difference would that make in our lives today? See, Advent forces us to consider not just that Jesus came into an anxious world, but Advent forces us to consider how Jesus came into this broken and anxious world. How did Jesus come? Well, when you look back in time... Luke tells us Jesus came eating and drinking. And when you look forward in time, Jesus himself says, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And what Jesus is doing is he's triggering a promise in Isaiah about the future. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. See, Jesus doesn't just come. Jesus comes eating and drinking. Jesus doesn't just come in the past eating and drinking. Jesus comes again eating and drinking. Jesus has a table agenda. And this might surprise some of us because most of us think of Christianity as a killjoy religion. But we just got done walking through the entire Bible as a church. And, you, and this, so it shouldn't surprise you at all that the Messiah came feasting. I mean, after all, feasting was baked into God's calendar. The architecture of time that God invites Israel to live within throughout all the Old Testament has, we could call, eight pillars. One of those pillars is a fast, Yom Kippur. The other seven are feasts. Seven out of the eight are feasts. 
each of which God's people are being called to the deepest kind of celebration. Celebrating His faithfulness. Celebrating His goodness. Celebrating His his kindness to to His people. Celebrating the good things that God creates and sustains and is renewing. Also, feasting was baked into their experience of God. And so, for instance, when a faithful Israelite made a fellowship offering because there was distance relationally between them and God because of their sin, when they, when they, received, when they gave this fellowship offering, what did they do? They feasted with the priest. Why? Because God wanted to say to His people, this is my relationship with you. It's one of feasting. It's not just my high priest. It's not just my priest who's feasting with you. It is I am feasting with you. And so it's baked into their very understanding of who God is in the Old Testament. One scholar says it this way. In Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus came eating and drinking. Okay? It shouldn't. But it does, doesn't it? Feasting is baked into God's Word. Jesus is God's Word made flesh. The deepest hope of every one of God's people was a final joyful feast. We read about it in Isaiah. And Jesus is God who takes on flesh, who dies for us as a perfect fellowship offering in order that we might have a forever feast with the Lord. Advent means Jesus comes feasting. Now, I should say this, though. That by itself isn't unique. I think in, in Jesus' day, and even in our day, uh, like the Roman Empire then, they valued feasting. We value feasting. I mean, we just have Thanksgiving as a culture. So we should ask this. What makes Jesus' feasting unique? And uniquely life-giving? So if Jesus had a table agenda, what were his manners? I want to focus on a couple things. First, Jesus upends. He upends the table manners of his day. And this is significant. He's not just a rebel who likes to be a contrarian. No, no. Everything he's doing is speaking. He is the word in flesh. He's saying something to anyone with ears who can hear and eyes that can see. He's pointing to the kingdom. He's pointing to the salvation he brings. And so in the Greco-Roman world of his day, the air that he and others were breathing had highly symbolic table manners. So tables symbolically expressed who had honor and who didn't. Weddings today actually contain an echo of this. When my friends were all getting married, I often, because they were my best friends, was seated at the table of honor. Up front, where everybody could see you. And he's even turned towards everybody else. Well, these days, these days, most weddings, I'm practically in the hallway, which is fine. I don't take that personally at all. I don't take that personally at all. You know, I had my time. It's gone. That's fine. In Jesus' day, people did take it personally. That was a serious thing. uh, Because table fellowship was everything in that society. One scholar says, the ancient dinner table was where folks drew the line. Who was in and who was out? You kind of get echoes of this at the lunch table, in school, in high school, in middle school, in elementary. 
Who is in and who is out? And not just personally, but socially. Who had honor and who had shame? Well, Jesus upends all of this, okay? He purposely upends all this. When he comes eating and drinking, he comes eating and drinking in a way that turns everything upside down. He eats with sinners and tax collectors, and they were certainly in the outcrowd. And so Jesus invites folks, as he says, in the highways and in the hedges, those who would be the least to be invited to a table of honor. Jesus is a sovereign king of all creation, and yet in his feasting, his table manners, he serves others and understands himself as a servant at his own meals. He upends everything that in that society they understood feasting to mean, which is why Jesus upsets. He offends our schemes, doesn't he? Our ideas about who's in, who's out. He offends our pride about who God saves and who God doesn't save according to our understanding. And so time and time again, you see two kinds of people in the Gospels. You see those feasting with Jesus and those refusing on the outside. You have feasters and you have refusers. So the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery helped me see this common theme, and they call it the refusal of festivities. Throughout the Bible, we encounter a refuser of festivities. Jonah, think about it, who will not join in the festivities of his enemy nation's salvation, but is outside of the party under the vine. Pharaoh, who refuses Israel when God calls them. Job's friends, who refuse to celebrate with Job's restoration. Michael, who refuses to dance with their brother David, but looks out the window on the outside of his feasting, of his celebrating. And yes, you're probably thinking of it, the Pharisees. We just heard the story of the prodigal son, which ends with a party, and the older brother is where? On the outside, doing what? Refusing festivities. What some people miss is how Luke sets up this story that we heard read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners. And what? Eats with them. And so this article says, Although Christianity has often been regarded as a stern faith by both critics and believers, the refusal of festivities is always associated with sinfully misplaced priorities, lending support to the claim of Jeremy Taylor that God promises to do terrible things to people who refuse to be happy. This happiness, by the way, is not a shallow happiness. It's not a circumstantial happiness. It's not frivolous it's not what I call distraction joy. It's deep joy. Okay? A lot of the, our uh, uh, pursuits of, of laughter, our pursuits of happiness, are really at root a scheme to distract. To 
to distract our deepest anxiety. So we're carrying a lot of anxieties. I read an article this week, actually, that talked about this kind of... Um, this kind of revival and stand-up comedy that's happening. Apparently, Nate Bargatze is like selling arenas out. You know, like it's amazing, breaking records in Nashville. Apparently, and and this author is like, I think people are hungry to laugh because we're really, really, really stressed out. <laughs> okay, and and here's the thing: a lot of that laughter is distraction joy. But there's a deep joy, there's an offer of joy, there's an offer of feasting that can be attuned to the sadnesses of the world and the sadnesses in our own world, and yet a deep, deep, deep feasting and joy and celebration that can happen. Why? Because it's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. When we have the smile of God in Jesus, no matter what is going on in our life, we can have joy at His table. This is like the Christian's unique gift. Uh, Almost a superpower. It's not a superpower. It's a gift. It's it's an absolute gift that God gives us a deep joy in the midst of whatever's going on. So let me just ask you a question. What would it look like to practice the discipline of deep joy? Of deep feasting in a fighter front. I want to offer three ideas. I'm just going to offer these ideas and I want the Lord to plant seed or to strike your imagination or that you might consider a pathway, a new behavior, a new action that could signal to the world about this coming Jesus who comes to feast, to celebrate. First thing I want to talk about is how the discipline of feasting might change the way you go to church. I think this idea, this truth, this reality, this when, not if of Jesus coming to eat and drink would change us as we come to church from having a guest mentality to a host mentality. And here's why. When we receive the hospitality of Jesus, we naturally want to extend it to others. And so what would it look like showing up to hope on a Sunday morning or to our home group on whatever day that is, asking this day, well, how can I set the table for others? Instead of asking, what will I get out of this. Because we have everything in the table of Jesus, we can now set the table for others. I think also this. I think you would be unsatisfied with the nickname or the the characterization of the frozen chosen. Okay? If you didn't know, Presbyterians have that sad but accurate nickname. The frozen chosen. Uh, we are stereotypically brainy, unexpressive, wordy, stoic in our emotions. But here's the thing. I've never been to a feast with those words as a descriptor. Have you? I mean, when you think of a wedding reception, do you think of those words? If we're previews of the future, if we're previews of the future feast, then how does that change the way that we come to church and even express our worship? 
I also think this might change the way you look at the Lord's Supper on a given Sunday. Uh, Jesus came eating and drinking, and before he left, he gave us a weekly feast. And on the one hand, this feast makes a lot of space for lament. It makes a lot of space and even invites our repentance, which is tearful. But it also is a preview of that future feast, and so it ought to bring deep, deep joy. Not a distracting joy. We're not distracted anymore by our sins because they have been dealt with by Jesus. We can look squarely at our sins and we can look squarely at the suffering of the world and have deep joy at this table. And then lastly I would say this, you would seek to break down dividing walls in this space. One scholar says this about the early feasting practices of the church. So looking at Acts chapter 2 and and even just learning historically how the church sort of reacted to the eating and drinking Jesus that they worshipped. Quote, such meals challenged believers to cross and forsake traditional boundaries between gender, rank, religion, and ethnicity. If Jesus upended the table... In his own ministry, so must we also. So what unbiblical and what ungodly boundaries are we upholding at this stage that we should carry? I think the discipline of feasting, of deep feasting, will also change the way you share Jesus with others. I think we would throw more parties than we would otherwise. I think I read a book a while ago. It said... uh, you know, throw a party in Jesus' name. And it's not a bait and switch. You're just throwing a party. You're just throwing a party. Inviting people in to eat, to feast. And then inform others how this is shaped by the good news of Jesus. Meals often say way more than words. But also think, I also think it means that as we share Jesus, we would understand ourselves to be inviting people into joy. It's been said by others that too often people standing outside the church think that to follow Jesus is to kind of enter into sort of a rigid moral club. What if instead the invitation to come and to to feast was on first out of our lips? Because then we would understand that our obedience flows from joy. And I think lastly, the discipline of feasting ought to change the way we pray. I think I've heard someone say, we ought to do regular joy audits in our life and in our prayer life. Joy audits. Am I a refuser of festivities? That's a good question. Let's just ask that right now. Am I a refuser of festivities when it comes to delighting in Jesus? We might value joy as central to our growth in Christ. Asking, ask, even asking, am I playful with the Lord? God is holy, but the scandal of the gospel is that He's also our Father. He's also friend. Jesus points to a child and says, "You got to enter the kingdom like this." Am I playful 
with the Lord and with others. We could ask, does my life of prayer shape me into a preview of that final feast? How can my decisions today, how can my actions today preview the feast that I'm heading towards? And what would it look like for people to experience our church hope as a reverent place, but under it a deeply and above it a deeply festive place? Not a place of shallow, frivolous, Happiness, but the deepest kind of anchored festivity. What if instead of fighting and infighting and outfighting, a visitor experienced hope as a place of feasting? Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Why? Well, Revelation 3 tells us so he can enter in to die. Are we feasting with Jesus? Or are we the refuser of festivals? Lord, we do pray that we would not refuse the, the joy and offer from you. And as we in this Advent season enter into a season of longing, would that longing be met by you, Jesus, who can you and drink? It's in your name. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about Hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.